This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. This is In Our City. Uh, I'm William Heath. So I was intrigued um, to see a couple of weeks ago an old newspaper clipping. More than 400 people have signed a petition to save an elderly people's home given to Bath by former Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie. And then it goes on. Uh, Councillor Dawn Stoller collected the petition. Avon Councillor Richard Allen, it said, who will be presenting the petition, said Avon simply can't afford to keep Fairfield House open simply because it is too small. It is not economical, it costs about twice as much as other homes, etc. So, who is this Richard Allen? I thought we might track him down, and guess what? He's in Bath this weekend, and I'm very pleased to say our guest today is Richard Allen. Richard, hi. Hi, good morning, William. So you're a former Bath councillor. I, I was a Bath and Avon councillor. So Fairfield House at the time was services for the elderly, it was a residential care home. Quite exactly. expensive, and that was an Avon responsibility. Uh, yeah, all of those yeah. sort of big services okay. had gone to Avon. So it came up for discussion at the time? It was. So Avon, I mean, again, it's uh, uh, you know, plus sa chance, plus yeah. c'est la même chose, that there were, there were like continual uh, crises in funding of care for older okay. people, just as there are today. Okay. Um, and so Avon had a big estate of all these different elderly persons' homes it, it inherited. Yeah. Uh, and then it had to rationalise them to say, look, how do we, how do we look after older people? within the budget that we've got. Okay, so what was your recollection of Fairfield House at that time? Dawn Stoller, who's mm -hmm. quoted was just this lovely uh, uh, councillor for Newbridge Ward. So okay. Newbridge had its own councillors. Right. Dawn was one of them. She was the person on the ground, very plugged into this local okay. community. And she could see the importance of it and the issues and the, the nature of the legacy. Yeah, so she was lobbying me, effectively, as the Avon County uh, councillor, okay. to say, would I... Uh, take the views of local residents on board right. when Avon was making its decision. And you had a million and one other things on your plate, but you were quite sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic, yeah. It seemed to me that she had a very good case, and I'm going to go on to say that um, when we looked at the legals, and again, I don't think this is any different today, uh, this home, Avon had acquired this home with these covenants, uh, um, and the covenant said it should be for the use of older people, but when you looked at them legally, they didn't really stand up yeah. they, they could be gone around so there was a political decision which was do we respect those wishes even though in theory we could sell it off and use the yeah. money for older people so what else did you get up to in, in bath that day? um so i worked uh i worked at the bell worked on various building sites and then and then really started to get involved in politics here so i'd always been interested in political issues but very skeptical of organized politics right and again, I found in Bath a community of people who I thought were doing politics the way I wanted it to be done, very community-focused, community-oriented. So you're in Bath, you've done some building sites, you've done yeah. some uh, working at the Bell, you've got into a bit of tech. Yes, yeah, so I, I went on in uh, um, Bristol Polytechnic, as it okay. then was, University yeah. of UWE, as it okay. now is, University of West of England. The founder of Imperial Voice is a, an adjunct professor uh, at UWE, so, so there's a link. I used to go across every day to the Cold Harbour Lane site, okay. uh, and I studied a master's degree in information technology. I was an, okay. When I arrived in Bath, I was an archaeologist, Okay. Um, and I actually did some work with the Bath Archaeological Trust, okay. um, out of their office in the circus, and then... There was an advert uh, for uh, um, a, a course. A it basically said, "Are oh, you a useless arts graduate? Do you want to learn something useful? Okay. We will we will pay for you to do a master's degree in information technology." Which I thought, "Well, that's great." Okay. And that was at U University of West of England. So I went over there, converted, and then I went to work for the health service. So was that at the RUH in Bath? Uh, nope. It was then again another bit of Avon. We had something called the Avon Family Health Service Authority. Okay which uh, looked after all the primary care providers, GPs, opticians, pharmacists, across the Avon County, including Bath, uh, and I worked for them. So you got elected as a councillor, and is that just loads and loads of work for on a voluntary basis and lots of grief? 
So, so there was, it's not entirely voluntary. At that right. time, again, it, uh, there was a, an, an attendance allowance. So okay. There was some money yeah. that was given to you, but it certainly is different now. I think there's more money involved. So okay. it, was not, it was not voluntary, but it wasn't going to okay. give you a, a kind of luxury lifestyle. You got yeah. some payment for turning up. Uh, so I got elected to Avon County Council, and that was dealing, I say, with things like health, education, okay. uh, uh, sort of social services, education, and so yeah. on. Then I got elected actually to Bath City Council, where oh, I represented yes. the Lansdowne Ward because right. I'm still going. Right, that, that actually representing the ward where we are now recording this show. I'm speaking to Richard Allen, yes. who's telling, talking to us about his time in Bath. We're streaming as if from the palace of His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie the First, but owing to lockdown. We're recording these things locally in Lansdowne, so you were the, the councillor for here. Yes, yeah, so I represented, actually on Avon, I represented uh, Newbridge, okay. where Fairfield House is. So okay. I represented, the Avon, Avon wards were bigger. Okay. So Avon, I had Northwest yeah. Bath, yeah. which included yeah. uh, Newbridge, Western, uh, and uh, Lansdowne. Mm-hmm. And then Bath City Council, there were smaller wards, and I just represented Lansdowne wards. So uh, Lansdowne, quite a posh ward, doesn't yeah. give you much trouble? Uh, Lansdowne was funny, I think... Um, we won, I think I won by 16 votes, Ooh. and it had been... For the Lib Dems. Ever, the Lib Dems. There, was was, a, yeah, yeah. there was a kind of bit of a landslide that year, but we won places we hadn't expected to win. Okay, so. well, so let's fire on a track, and then we'll hear about that, that stage of life later. So, first up track, the 96 Tears by the Stranglers. Yeah, so th- this was when I moved to Bath. I lived in a house just off the London Road, uh, and one of the other people in the house was a musician. I, as a child... The, the first single I bought when I was 11 was a Stranglers song, and I loved the Stranglers. I was a, uh, a young punk rocker. Right. Um, I opened the door one day uh, to the drummer from the Stranglers, who was coming because the musician in my house was composing the, the horn section for the Stranglers. So he played with the Stranglers. Oh, fantastic. So he wasn't one of the original Stranglers, but he played with them. And he had been composing the riff for 96 years. So I've been lying in my basement flat listening to this guy composing this riff here in Bath. Richard Allen, you are a piece of the rock. Let's listen to Nice Six Tears.
called punk, is it? No, no, no. This was this was kind of. So your mate composed the brass section for that. Yes. Nice baritone honks in there and stuff. Yeah, yes. Fantastic. Was he a sax player himself? Uh, yes, he had uh, sax. He composed and then played. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So that is 960s, chosen by uh, Richard Allen, who is our guest today, former Avon County Councillor for the ward, which included Fairfield, and former Lansdowne Councillor for here. Yeah. And uh, am I allowed to uh, flip this round? Yeah. This conversation around a little because I'm I'm fascinated that. Uh, uh, some years later, you're very involved in Fairfield House, and I'd, I'd love it if you'd get me up to speed on on what's happening and what you're trying to do. Because you know, now that it's moved back to Baines, and there now, I, I guess, thinking what to do with it in the same way that Avon was way back when. Well, that is sort of all your fault, basically. Right. First I, of all, you know, we live our lives <laughs> backwards, and I'm now living where you used to live. Yeah. We came to Bath because my mum got ill and uh, couldn't live anymore in the house she was in, but she got better and moved out. You took me to the Bell. That's right. Because you'd worked there and loved it. And I thought, wow, what a place. And then two weeks later, they're sort of, Ian's going to sell the Bell. It's going to turn into a gastro pub. And Facebook had this sort of um, save the Bell thing. And I thought, well, yeah, we must save the Bell because yeah. I've only just got here. I haven't had enough time to really enjoy it. So I teamed up with the day manager and the band booker and we formed the co-op, which purchased the Bell. I think you wrote the forward, didn't you? That's you? right. Yeah, yeah the, the brochure. It was, it, was work. Yeah. it was a success. You know, the community yeah. rose up and yeah. bought the place. And, it, it, you know, we all got tax relief on our investment. And it's trading it profitably. Well. Yeah, yeah, it is. So so that was very exciting. And out of the back of that, I um, got involved in the buyout of Bar City Football Club, which uh, plainly needs to persist and succeed. And I think that will be a successful community-owned football club. And then I just, I just got... I came across Fairfield House and got really intrigued by it. And clearly, something needed to happen to put it into a sort of sustainable, independent social enterprise footing because it's a massive legacy. That was that and it's legal. What was the legal state of Fairfield House when you came across it? Okay, so I think that's important. I mean, it's it was given to the Corporation of Bath with the intention that it should be a home for the aged. Yeah. So when you were a councillor at Avon. It was housing the aged. It was found to be unsuitable. It then did daycare for the aged under a tenancy at will from Baines Council. Yeah. So, so when, this... it, when Avon closed, it yeah. passed it back to yeah. Baines, and yeah. then Baines used it as a day centre. Yeah. So the legal owner is Baines. Yep. And the the legal sort of operator in the house is Bemska, which provides non-residential daycare for typically Caribbean, but also Indian, Chinese, anyone else. It's, it's wonderful daycare. Super food, super tea, lovely company, dancing, music. It's how we would want to be looked after in our dotage. But there's no security of tenure of any sort. So your Lib Dem successors had identified the need to do a sort of community asset transfer. And Fairfield House had formed a community association, which is an informal group with a bank account to try and take the house on. And they'd worked at that diligently for several years. The community association, it did have representation across the different communities. So for example, Ras Bandeli Selassie, the Rastafari priest from the Southwest, was very present and had a very strong voice on it. Philip Bonn, who is connected and who's a representative of the, um, the grandchildren of the Imperial Royal Family, was um, very effective on it. It was chaired by Steve Nightingale, who's a, a property professional, which is a skill you really need to take on a place like that. The challenge was that it didn't have... I became an advisor to that group, and you could see the power of the proposition and the beauty of the place and the balance of the group, but it wasn't able to make progress. And one of the core reasons was, your question, it didn't have sufficient legal form. Yeah, Baines cannot do a 100-year lease with a community association. Baines has got a community asset transfer policy. They recently said Fairfield House is a classic case for community asset transfer. Exactly what that policy was devised for. But we needed to form a new legal entity which had sufficient form to take on a contract like that. So we formed Fairfield House Bath Kick Community Interest Company, okay. CIC. Right. And, um, and a kick is a, a mechanism for people to have a business entity, is it that How's it different from a regular company? Yeah, it's a legal form with companies' house. So it, it can take contracts. Right. You can either have them for profit, which we're not, or you can have a not-for-profit. So we are a, a, a kick. It's called limited by guarantee, therefore not-for-profit. It has directors, yeah. and the directors are Sean Sobers, Benjamin Pettit, Ras Benji, 
um, Celia Mead, myself, Blaine Dowdle, who's an entrepreneur, a Canadian entrepreneur now active in Jamaica, and Pauline Swaby, who's the director of Bemska, sits on all the board meetings yeah. because of her office with Bemska, but it can't be as a director of the company as well. So that's really the group driving the CIC forward. And we then wrote to Baines saying, we think that the legacy of Alex Lassie should be protected by this group, which puts the needs of the elders at the centre, the sort of three-legged stool model. Mm. And the, the, the base of the stool is the seat, if you want, is the elders. If we do it for the elders, then we have the moral authority of what His Imperial Majesty's legacy was for. And it's supported on three legs, and they are African diaspora people, particularly of Ethiopian origin, but also Caribbean. And they're the ones who are doing a lot of day-to-day mm. -day work there. The Rastafari, who've kept Haile Selassie's reputation alive and who are the most devoted um, followers and champions and who, who volunteer very actively to, you know, when, when something needs doing, the roof, you know, drainage is blocked or garden clearance needs, they are there. They're mm. very, very um, energetic for the cause of Fairfield House. But the third leg of the stool is the people of Bath, to whom it was left. And our contention is that those three groups, the, the, the wider African diaspora, Ethiopian, Caribbean, everything, specifically Rastafari, who are obviously of diverse ethnic origins as well, and people of Bath, who may be parts of the other group as well, but, but those three groups working together, respecting each other, and putting the needs of the elders at the centre. So that's our aim. Great. And, and what happens then that so... so Baines could give this long lease to your new not-profit community interest company, so you would then be responsible for the building, is that right? Yeah, so Baines has a, a policy for community asset transfer. They say, if we have an asset which we can't really look after, and it is yeah. very much underinvested, anyone who's been there can see, you know, it, it needs repainting, it needs uh, energy, insulation, new boiler, roof repair, trees to be trimmed back, it needs security measures. There's, there's hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of sort of, 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 of backlog maintenance that needs to be done. And Bain's policy says, if there's an asset which is of value to the community, but we're not really the right people yeah. to do it, you can express interest and go through a process which says, we will take this on. And we are sort of at step seven of a 13 yeah. step process, which is they have accepted our expression of interest. And then afterwards, the the um, daycare centre will continue as before. Yes, yeah, so, that carries on. So we said in our expression of interest, the central thing is that the work of Bemska will continue, you know, uninterrupted. Right. So that they would be our, in a way, our anchor tenant. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're very. The, the funding for Bemska is is it's, it's as sort of tight as it is across that whole sector. Yeah. But they would be able to pay a basic rent for using the place. Yeah. And and being a, a cynical old politician, just to check, then uh, am I right thinking? Because you're a community interest company, you wouldn't then just be able to go, oh, we've changed our minds now, we want to turn it into flats, make <clears> some money. So community interest company legal form is assets locked. Yeah. So there are legal restrictions. I mean, there's a strong protection in the legal form for any asset that you look after. You can't put it to a sort of a for profit use. And also Baines's lease with us would be quite, I mean, it would be more like a partnership with Baines and yeah. not like taking it off them. They would say, you must demonstrate to us the community purposes that you're serving. How many homeless people show up yeah. at Fairfield House and need looking? How many people with mental health challenges? How many elders? How many visitors, uh, pilgrims? Uh, and so we would have a business plan, which is about opening to the public, about letting the spaces to appropriate groups. And we'd have to demonstrate to Baines quantifiable community benefit in that, in right. that terms. And so we couldn't suddenly pivot into doing, and we would forego the lease yeah. if, for example, we pivoted our business plan without their consent, or if there were material breaches of things like the Equalities Act. Yeah. So there's quite a set of. Criteria. So the community could be very confident it would be serving those community purposes. Yeah, I mean that for the long term. But the difference being, you would be able to get the investment into it that the council can't. Yeah, that's that's exactly the point. I mean, like, yeah. so the council is very regulated and prescribed in what it can and can't do and almost all of its money has to go on social care adult social care and so on and they don't have much discretion over that and they have to focus on local issues and on the services they're meant to provide fairfield house is completely different because it has international interest and it's a sacred place and and baines aren't able to process that we think a community interest company is better placed 
to appeal to the international community that is interested in Fairfield House, and also, for example, to make um, grant and foundation bids about developing it for a wider purpose than Baines is really allowed to contemplate. Um, so how long do we have to wait to find out if all this is going to come off? So, so um, it took us 15 months to get the expression of interest approved, so yeah. things don't move fast. Um, it's meant to be a three-month process, but we now feel things are moving. Uh, the Baines procedure suggests a six-month period for evaluating a business plan. So we're now drafting the Memorandum of Understanding, the Partnership Agreement, and we have a business plan, but Baines need to be satisfied that it's robust and the House isn't going to come back to them in five years. Yeah. And there's two aspects to that. It has to be properly capitalised because the building needs to be in good nick and to have a proper endowment. And it also needs... You know, income has to exceed expenditure, otherwise yeah. you're obviously going to drift into trouble. That's great. So, so goodness, 25 years uh, since we were debating it on Avon County Council. I'm really glad to hear that finally there may be a long-term solution in the offing that will meet the needs of all the different communities. Well, it's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take goodwill from all the different communities involved. But we would be very hopeful now that at some point we can invite you to the launch of what will be... Uh, you know, a, a properly tenanted Fairfield House Bath Community Interest Company. It, it, it's, you know, we've got our blue plaque, the first round blue plaque in Bath. Uh, we've had um, royal visits. We've got much more interest, I think, from enlightened councillors now. Our local councillors, um, Michelle and Mark, are taking a great interest in it. The councillors in charge of finance and resources and the leader now are very mindful of what we have here. Because, I mean, politically... You're a politician. I'm not. But it seems to me, if you've got, you know, Black Lives Matter protests breaking out and you've got Bristol sort of with this controversy of ripping down a statue of a slave trader, Bath has something completely different, which is like an imperial household, somebody who's revered, um, you know, worshipped, and who not only has a, an immense dignity and statesmanlike quality about him, but who spoke incredibly powerfully about equality in, in, in his, you know, the song War, done by Bob Marley. His, yeah. his words about race equality are a completely different start point to that whole thing. I mean, as a politician, that's quite a gift, isn't it? It is. And I, I guess the other thing is just the, the fact that his decision was to leave the property for older people in the community itself tells you something. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, I think it says that the relationship was good, that he yeah. felt welcome as a yeah. war refugee coming to Bath, that he responded to the warmth of his welcome with a, with a very generous gift. Yeah. So generally, you know, refugees can give back far more than they take. It's a whole load of good associations. Yeah. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. Hey, thank you. That's <laughs> isn't your second track. My, my second track, yes. So um, uh, this one is, is a, a radical revolutionary song, uh, perhaps appropriate after that uh, discussion we've had around how you can change things. Um, and this is called The the World Turned Upside Down by Dick Gogan. And it's actually a song about a revolution back in 1649 when a group of people uh, took over a place called St. George's Hill. They were called the Diggers. And they took it over and started to grow their own food. Uh, and it was uh, it was following the English Civil War, a kind of form of, a, of rebellion against established order. So, World Turned a, Upside Down. There was a play about this at the, the Quaker Meeting House last year. It was really good. Right. Yeah. Imagine, yeah. It, was, it was quite a moment. There were a lot of experiments at that period, in, uh, a lot of it driven actually by non-conformist religion. People were overthrowing or rejecting the established church. They were restrict, rejecting uh, notions that landlords control them and you had to, I mean, effectively you were still serfs, even though technically you know, you'd moved on, but you were treated as a serf because you owed everything to your landlord. Uh, people had fought a civil war for their freedom and they wanted to express that. So I, I tell you who would be massively into this, and that is the Rastafari. I wonder if they know about this, because right. I mean, they are classic diggers. We'll have a, we'll have a listen and well, see I'd if it resonates. I've never heard of Dick Di Go Gogan. Dick Gogan is a, a, a folk singer. Who, a funk singer. Folk singer. Folk, folk singer. singer, not folk singer. So, Dick Gogan, can you dig it? Um, his track, The World Turned Upside so, Down. Forty-nine, St. George's Hill A ragged band they called the diggers Came to show the people's well They defied the landlords They defied the laws They were the dispossessed Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said To dig and sow 
We come to work the land in common And to make the wasteland grow The earth divided We will make gold So it can be a common treasury for all The sin of property we do disdain No one has any right to buy and sell the earth For private gain by theft and murder They took the lands Now everywhere the walls rise up at their command They make the laws to chain us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven Or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich While poor men starve We work, we eat together We need no swords We will not bow to masters Or pay rent to the lords We are free men Though we are poor You diggers all stand up for glory, stand up now. From the men of property, the orders came. They sent the hired men and troopers to wipe out the diggers' claim, tear down their cottages, destroy their corn. They weren't dispersed, only the vision lingers on. You poor take courage, you rich take care. The earth was made a common treasury for everyone to share all things in common, all people one. We come in peace, the order came to cut them down. Yeah, no, we like that. Yeah. Jake Gogan, never heard of him. Is he Irish? Uh, I, I need to check or yeah. I'm going to get into trouble if you ascribe yeah. somebody to the wrong geography. Folk fans can be so slickety, can't so, they? So, yeah. So I'm not, I have to admit, I'm not a big folky. We can check the facts. But it's interesting that that, that, that like. act of rebellion kind of resonates and is celebrated, isn't it? it exactly, yes. It, it, I mean, it's, what now, 1649? Yeah. Uh, 350, 370 years yeah. ago. But it's, it's very British and very early. Yeah. He's actually Scottish. Okay. Um, but it's, it's very much part of the, the British revolutionary tradition, which we sometimes forget about. Everyone talks about the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Yeah. Britain had quite a profound revolution quite early on. Yeah. Which actually, in religious terms meant that we had uh, what I call non-conformists, yeah. almost defined as a negative, they're not yeah. We had a, a flowering of multiple different uh, um, visions of the world in religious terms, yeah. at a time when most countries were very much locked into mm. some kind of official you know, religion. Mm. Um, and that also led to a sort of whole, whole growth of independence of thought, independence of organisation. Uh, people would meet uh, in, in their own uh, groupings, not groupings that were dictated by the state or by the bishops or by authorities. Do you think we still benefit from that kind of radicalism, or do you think it's just dissipated and been overtaken by a kind of obeisance to capitalism? Uh, I think it's difficult because I think, again, in parallel, we should forget that you know Britain went on a, a colonial rampage around the world. Yes, essentially exploiting, uh, you know communities that it came across and, and pulling all that wealth back to the United Kingdom. So so it didn't make us so yeah. into better people. No. I think we should confuse us yeah. with that. But, you, you, you know, it maybe is reasonable to think in terms of certainly independence of thought, uh, the genuine non-conformity of thought, which may then also bleed into other areas like non-conformity of artistic expression. Yeah. There probably was, I, th I think there certainly was, there, there is a, a strong tradition of, um, celebrating people who are not following the orthodox path yeah. in the United Kingdom, and a tradition of, sort of cooperation and and uh, social so, so that, cooperativism. That's the, that's the bit I, I maybe didn't work so well because yeah. you know we we still have a very class based society. Yeah. Uh, as I say, you look at our history, and and um, it was essentially United Kingdom uh, drawing the wealth of the world back to these shores so that we could build you know, beautiful country houses and, and uh, look after ourselves. So yeah. I don't think we should, as I say, confuse 
necessarily independence of thought with great outcomes. Yeah, the independence of thought is yeah. there. But land ownership is all completely tied down. I mean, yeah. you can't sort of travel. You can't just go. And the, yeah. dig, the diggers would have a hard time if they tried to. It, it hasn't radically changed since they were yeah. here, yeah. Uh, in a sense. So again, you look at the studies of land ownership, and it's still largely yeah. in the hands of very yeah. small number of very large landowners yeah. in the yeah. UK. Yeah. So sadly. The, the revolution may have been a revolution more of the mind than okay. it was a revolution okay. of property and wealth. Okay, so we're sort of free-thinking but, but poor. But, uh, unequal. Unequal. Free-thinking but, free but unequal, unequal. Okay, got it. both within the country and globally. Okay, so let's get back to your journey. Yeah. You left Bastogoff to be, and you ran a successful campaign to become MP at Sheffield. That's Island. right. Is that, so you turned out to be a good organiser and you had good volunteers and knocked on lots of doors. Yeah, it was a great team. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to be a good political candidate, well, well, Either you're in a constituency where, um, you know, they weigh the votes instead of counting them for your party, your party's locked in and you're yeah. fine. Very unusual for Lib Dem to be in that position, but certainly a number of Labour Conservative MPs were in seats that have not changed hands for, you know, uh, 50 years or yeah. more. Um, so either you've got that or or you're trying to get a campaign going to overturn something. And there I'd say the strongest characteristic is being able to build a team of volunteers yeah actually very much like what you've been doing with some of the projects in Bath. yeah it's it's about people who are freely giving of their labor okay uh to because they believe in something okay and okay. if you to be a good candidate you need to inspire people to want to give of their labor go out and knock on doors and deliver leaflets and do the campaign so you win the thing you become an mp yes. how, how effective can you actually be as an mp how much can you achieve and what, what, what's the culture like working in that I mean, so i would say there, there is a lot of confusion sometimes about the role of the house of commons it, it isn't really a legislature in the sense of you know making the laws i.e., drafting the laws what it really does is i mean the government in the uk drafts the laws it all happens, you know, before anything ever gets to Parliament. All the interesting stuff happens. The law arrives in Parliament and government defends it. And the House of Commons really is about holding the government to account for what they're doing. It's not about being the government, unless you're one of the ministers in the governing party. So, okay, so, so it's sort of a, a platform for scrutiny and the ability to tinker a bit and make changes. Yeah, the, the primary purpose of the House of Commons is to test the government. Yeah, and do you think it does that effectively? I mean, it, it does it within its own logics. There are different logics. Uh, the British system, it is very much um, a bit like in court. You have a, a sort of confrontational yeah. uh, situation where the government stands up and they say, as they are doing now this year, they stand up and say, we're doing a brilliant job on yeah. everything. We're world beating. We Everything's fantastic. And the opposition's job is to pick holes and go, yeah. no, no, here's where you're failing. Yeah, slightly so, open goal at the moment. But I mean, even yeah. It needs, needs to be done. It needs to be done, but it's sort of unedifying. Yeah. It's quite rough. I yeah. personally, I talked earlier about, in fact, I'm not really into this whole sort of Yabu confrontational. Right. So you wouldn't men. bray, for example. You wouldn't, you know, you, you, no, you wouldn't make that noise. No, but is yeah. designed for that. And, yeah. and so within its own internal logic, it makes sense. Okay. Like it has to be, the logic is, Government in the UK gets extraordinary powers. I mean, extraordinary. It does it all in the name of the Queen, and in the name of the Queen, it can pretty much do anything. Yeah. And so it's got these extraordinary powers. The one thing that kind of holds it in check is the Prime Minister has to come every week, right. and people can try and punch him. Right. Uh, and, you know, when I started, Tony Blair would come in every week, and people would try and punch him. They never landed right. anything. Like, he was Teflon Tony. He yeah. Because he was you know, very good? Because he was very good at what he did, yeah. and he was very good at defending the government. Yeah. yeah. And you can feel when a government is failing. Theresa May, for example, mm. towards the end, you could feel it. I'm almost literally in her voice cracking. And, mm. You know, you could feel it when people were landing blows. Mm. So, so Parliament, that's really what it's trying to do, is to, is to test the government. Okay. And in doing so, it is, is sort of the logic that we've got is quite a... It's not a sort of rational forensic testing. It's quite a yabu, yeah. punchy testing. Yeah, and that's sort of how it is. So we live with it and just try and make it work and, and contribute where we can. Well, at the moment, you could change it. Yeah. But what you shouldn't do, and you could change it into more uh, of a sort of forensic analytical model, but you would have to radically redesign okay. it. The one thing we should not do, which would be my advice, is... And sometimes you get government saying this. Government says, well, you know, prime test questions is a bit yabu. Let's just sort of tone it down. Well, no, I, either the ministers are coming and you're having a punch up or you've got to find some other mechanism that's equally effective. Right. What you don't want to do is, I think the US is a bit like this. Yeah. You know, the US executive, the president and the executive never have to go into a forum where people have a pop at them. Right. And they're um, even controlling their press conferences. Yeah, and, very you, tightly, and yeah. you can't. So I would hate to have a system like yeah. that where yeah. Yeah. prime minister and ministers don't 
go and get beaten up from time to time. That would be much yeah. worse because okay. then they would feel they can do what, what they like. So you served two terms? I did. 97, uh, was re-elected 2001. Yep. Got more and more interested in tech policy? <clears throat> I did. So yeah. I'd, I'd worked in tech obviously before, getting yeah. into parliament, did, spent a lot of time on tech policy when I was in there. And I got in quite young. Um, and so I had to make that choice of, is, is this going to be my you know, full-time career for the, for the rest of my uh, professional life or do I want to do something different? And, um, uh, you know, the internet was sort of taking off, exploding, becoming more important. And I decided I would rather be working in the heart of internet companies. Um, you know, when you're in parliament, these internet people come in front of you and your committees and you question them. And you need to decide sometimes which side of the table do I want to be okay, on. Okay, you just thought that they were doing something more exciting and vibrant or, and relevant. And, and at sort of... some point in my career, I wanted to do what they were doing. Okay. So I didn't want to be yeah. the person who yeah. was questioning them the whole time. I wanted to be the person who's building the stuff and then okay. answering the question. Okay. So, uh, and to do that, at some point, you've got to leave Parliament and go and do it. So you just handed over your seat? Uh, it's not quite simple. So I, the party locally gets to choose right. the candidate. Right. I, so you said, I think I'm going to move on. They then picked a candidate. Exactly. I said, I they, wasn't pick? they picked Nick Clegg at well, the end. Okay, so that worked well. So that worked well. Again, people have different views politically. I, I uh, am a friend of Nick's and remained a friend of his. And I, you know, we can all acknowledge mistakes that were made in the coalition. My own view, people listening might contest this, though, is that the coalition government was about as good as we could get in the context of the financial crisis and yeah. everything else. Now, People so, are very unforgiving, aren't they? It's, it's sort of, the Lib Dems tried to get electoral reform and conceded on uh, education uh, fees. Yeah. And people behave as if the Lib Dems kind of solely made that executive decision to break their manifesto pledge. It's very odd. People are very unforgiving, aren't they? They're unforgiving. They're angry. And, and Yeah, and I think it's difficult when you... Uh, when you don't have the sort of counterfactual. So, so again, it's very easy to kind of say, well, this could have been a better government. But at the time, uh, the country was in real trouble. Um, and, and again, I would look at the, the counterfactual of what happened when we had a pure Conservative government after 2015. Yeah. I think it's demonstrably worse. Yeah. Had the Lib Dems not gone into coalition, they collapsed everything and had another election. Yeah. How would that have gone? Then that's, we don't know what yeah. the outcome of that would have been, but that would have been the real yeah. alternative. So yeah. it was, do you muddle along and do your best uh, to try and help the country manage that period? Or do you collapse everything and walk away? Yeah. Okay. And that was the choice, but say, but Nick, Nick yeah. made the choice. He, he uh, yeah. uh, you know, is responsible. I don't think he's ever shied away from being responsible for yeah. that. He's never run away from it. Yeah, it was very tough, wasn't it? I mean, the, the really uh, hard. Yeah. yeah, and 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 you and did you think that, that the Lib Dems sort of knew going into coalition that it would be hard coming out of it as a junior partner? Yes, yeah, so I think they knew it's hard. I don't think they knew how hard. Yeah. I I think probably. A, you know, a bunch of my colleagues in Lib Dems might not have wanted to go that way if they'd right. known it was that hard. Yeah. I think Nick, to be candid, probably would have done. Yeah. Because, you know, the whole point of getting elected is not to just keep your political party ticking along, no. but it's to be there, particularly at a time when the country's in crisis. Achieve what you can while you can. And, and yeah, yeah. yeah. And not just to walk away from responsibility. So, yeah, that, that's really... Fantastic. I think we're at sort of track three. Um, mm. And, and there's a choice to make here, isn't there? We, we, we're looking at either propeller heads or jar wobble. Yes. So we're, we're, have you sort of come down? I'm, I'm wobbling between these. So yeah. I'll, I'll tell I propel you towards one or the other. Yeah, I, th I th think we may go propeller. But just, just to, to jar wobble was because there was one night, uh, and I was thinking very bath here, but they're both bath connections. So there was one night where jar wobble played in front of the Royal Crescent. And I just remember it was just like a superb evening uh, wobbling to jar wobble in front of the Royal Crescent. Propeller Heads is uh, my friend again, who who um, was the horn section for the Stranglers, went on to form the Propeller Heads. What's uh, his name? Uh, Alex Gifford. Okay. And um, so he he uh, wrote that with uh, uh, Will, who's a, a guy who's also sort of local to Somerset, and they created th this amazing sound of the Propeller Heads. Uh, here locally, um, okay. so they're both good, strong local connections. So with Jar Wobble, I, I kind of love the way that His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie, with all his dignity and all the reverence for him, that his name is used for Jar Wobble, who's just a wonderful musician. <laughs> yeah. But there's 
there's a sort of levity about it, isn't it? It's, it's just a really funny name. It's like, yeah. it's like Eka Mouse or something. You know? That's right. And the wobble, I understand, is because people couldn't pronounce his proper name, uh, which I think is Waddle uh, correctly, so it ended up with that. So okay. Little... Well, we'll save Joe Wobble for another time, and we will go, because of that very personal connection, we'll go with propeller heads. And history repeating itself, I think, is also, yes. uh, as we identified earlier, 25 years. Completely, since yes. I was campaigning for Fairfield House, and now you're campaigning history for Fairfield History repeats House. itself at Fairfield history House. History is repeating itself. Okay, here we go. There's something evolving Whatever may come The world keeps revolving They say the next big thing is here That the revolution's near But to me it seems quite clear That it's all just a little bit of history repeating your mate uh alex yes yes who so you lived with in bath uh yes yeah in in uh, brunswick street off the london road so i never heard that it, it's it's so contemporary so so who was yeah. that singer so the singer was shirley bassey my word yes yes I think, oh, welsh welsh royalty uh, exactly i think through i assume connections i don't know oh, alex okay. knows people they okay. signed her up okay. shirley bassey was signed up for what else does the Divine Wikipedia tell us about the propellers? Uh, uh, it tells us that they were... Uh, uh, it was 1997. Okay. Uh, when the song a good, was written. A good year. It was a good year for lots of exciting Indeed. things happening. Um, My Wikipedia says propeller device that transmits rotational power. Would that be, would that be uh, it? Yeah, Alex was actually an engineer. Oh, okay. Um, so that may have something to do Will with Will White it. and Alex Gifford. That's right. And Will is also local... Uh, to here through the indie label Wall of Sound. Is he and he's in now in New York? Is he? Uh, Alex is now in New York. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the album was called Decks and Drums and Rock and Roll. Uh, very good. Very good. Should we get him on the show? Uh, yes. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll see if we can. Yeah. Yeah. The Matrix. 
Oh, the connection was a James Bond connection. Uh, okay, yeah, so that figures. They'd worked on some James Barry yeah. music. So, so there we go. So you stepped down as an MP, which uh, at quite a young age. Yes. You you sort of helped Nick Clegg's arrival, and you managed his campaign for leadership. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that. so uh, and then you are now peer of the realm. Uh, yes. Full proper title, Baron Allen of Hallam. Fantastic. Which is the old constituency with Sheffield Hallam. How is the House of Lords? Is it an effective place? It um, it, it's different. So, so my uh, shorthand description for anyone who who's sort of interested in the British constitutional setup is that the House of Commons is like a boxing match. So I describe it's the place where people try and land a knockout yeah. blow on the government. They try yeah. to punch it into the ground. The House of Lords is much more like wrestling. It, it's, a, it's a sort of staged <laughs> fight where you, you kind of know what the outcome is going to be. And, okay. and I say that because the House of Lords can't really go against an elected government when it's doing something it said it was going to do. Okay, so so that's the Salisbury Convention, isn't it? Yeah. If it's in the manifesto. But So what about this this um, internal market bill, which wasn't in the manifesto? Could the Lords block that? Again, it's sort of... Um, I mean, in the British Constitution, we make it all up as we go along. Yeah. There's no, but there is a sense of what's right and what's yeah. not right. And I think the sense is, look, this government was elected with a big majority. They should have their way. So the Lords should not... But they weren't, they weren't elected to break the law. I mean, we can all... I, I think the Lords will put up a lot of resistance. Yeah. Uh, and so the extent to which, in the wrestling match, you're allowed to get, like... You know, three falls. We could okay. we could maybe throw the government on the map three times right. and counter five before right. letting them up. Okay. But on the fourth time, the government will win. But that okay. process of throwing the government on the mat uh, uh, and making it, the government feel like they're not going to win yeah. itself causes delay. Okay. It causes the Commons to have to vote on the yeah. thing again. Yeah. It'll spin it out. So then you had a think and and yeah. jumped and went to work for a sort of fast-growing little social media company. That's right. At the, at the time, mainly uh, uh, seen as a service for kids. Yeah, indeed. Teenagers. Which We're was... hooking up with women that you fancied or didn't fancy. Yeah. Okay, and that was... Uh, Facebook. Facebook. How, much, how many people worked for Facebook? About 600 at the time. Whoa, and how many is it now? It's about 50,000, I think. Good heavens. So it's grown and a hundred odd folds since then. So what was your sort of oversight at Facebook? What, what, what patch did so you So I was about? looking after, I was the first person they hired outside of the US to help uh, understand and navigate the policy landscape. So I think wow. they understood that they were going to hit on more and more questions where you know governments are interested in. So policy very broad in yeah. everything that governments are interested yeah. in. So that could be everything from privacy and surveillance through to you know, are kids safe on the platform? Well, there's uh, sort of, are you facilitating terrorism? And exactly. are you helping bring down democratic governments yeah. through sort of uh, uh, micro-targeting of groups so, who, you know, in a way which is not yet regulated because no one knew this was possible? And that's all come later. Yeah. So okay. in, the, in the early days, it was very much, uh, again, about keeping the highest priority issues were keeping kids safe. Right, okay. You know, that was right. really top of the pot. So preventing kids from contacting... Uh, adults they've met or, or from seeing content that was inappropriate. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, and Facebook doesn't know who people are, really. It didn't originally, did it? Uh, no, I mean, people give an email address and, yeah. and that's about it. So so they were, they were child safety and uh, I think that's probably number one. And then some privacy issues that, you know, how are you handling the data? Um, and then if we think back to then, sort of 2009, 2010, you had things like the Arab Spring where the yeah. political use of the platform was seen as entirely beneficial. Yeah, I remember peace.facebook.com, yeah. which, uh, which would show how many Israelis had made friends with Arabs at any given time. So I, was, I was very excited. So from that. a point of uh, at least a Western government point mm. of view, uh, if you were if you were the uh, uh, dictator of Egypt, it wasn't so yeah. benign. But um, yeah. from a Western government point of view, there were no concerns that it was destroying democracy. Quite the opposite, it was seen as a force to because advance democracy. Because people were organising and connecting with each other and there's a degree of openness. And, and yeah. challenging yeah. autocratic governments. But that sort of turned into a risk or a sort of darker downside, didn't it? Or it brought with it a risk, didn't it? I, I, I mean, again, I think it holds out. It only really, I think people really became concerned uh, when the wrong people won. <laughs> In Western countries, so okay. if we if we look at where the concerns were most strongly raised, they're raised after the the election of President Trump in the U.S. So you, wasn't there a stage where the organisers of the Arab Spring were tracked and traced and imprisoned? There, there were. So there was a pushback. So yeah. 
So there were uh, there was a sort of push to overthrow people. Yeah. And then... Um, and it wasn't that safe a way to do it because people are transparent. And they, yeah. and they're, and they're, exactly. And then, and then what happened yeah. is some governments got smart about yeah. then reversing the use of the technology. So government yeah. like the government of Syria that yeah. have not been overthrown uh, started hiring people to yeah. try and track people online yeah. and it became risky. So there's a whole area yeah. that the action at this stage was still very much seen as a undemocratic country. Yes, uh, yeah. sphere. Yeah. I don't think I didn't detect any significant concerns in democratic countries all the way up to kind of 2015, yeah. right. 2016, where at the time, you know, all the political parties were using it, it was seen as fine. And then you had a series of elections where it was then seen as a negative because people had been elected. Yeah. So is that sort of Trump, Bolsonaro? Bolsonaro later, I mean, that was quite a bit later, but the... Duterte in the Philippines. Right. Modi in India. Okay. You know, there's a right. series of people who... Where, where, and the Brexit election as well. And Brexit, where yeah. people have been elected who yeah. are more of the nationalist right yeah. persuasion. Yeah. And do you think that's because uh, some people were unhappy about the res results and there's a sort of sour grapes element of it? Sort of, how did they get elected? Oh, they used Facebook, therefore, you know, we blame Facebook. So I think that there's a mixture of things. So there are genuine questions about... Um, uh, there is a gap. You know, we regulate... Uh, yeah, to different degrees in different leaflets countries. and advertising, leaflets, advertising yeah. of, co of course there should be a framework for regulating online yeah. interestingly though some countries have done it Brazil's done some Canada's done some France has done some but a lot of the countries like the US and the UK have, have just you know, neglected their duty to regulate this and, stuff. And not even looked into it. No. They complain, yeah. Well, they complain about it. They've yeah. done lots of analysis of like why we think it's wrong, right. but neither of them have done any substantive right. reform. Right. So, so they've been asleep at the wheel. Yeah, and the legal okay. situation today yeah. is the same yeah. as it always was. So people freaked out about Cambridge Analytica. Were there kind of loads of Cambridge Analyticas, or do you think there was... No, I think, again, Cambridge and, Analytica in context, that there, there, there are... Uh, it's a small part of a much bigger system. So if you right. know... The American system, they have a thing called the voter file. Right. And so the political parties in America are buying data from everywhere, all of the commercial data providers, all of them, and they crunch it up in a big database where they know who you are and they know what they want to target you with. And one small part of that was the Cambridge Analytica thing. That was another right. data source, but yeah. it's one of okay. hundreds of data sources. So who no do one's think, focused on that, on the big picture. So who do you think has the most comprehensive picture of individuals in the UK? In the UK, I would say, so some of the campaigns have been quite smart about it. Right. I'd say all the political parties try and do it. Right. Um, but, but do you think political parties have anything like the amount of information that commercial organisations, credit agencies, social media... I think less have. in the UK, partly right. because the UK's just got less money in politics. Right. So in America, you're spending a billion dollars on a campaign. Because there's everything to win. You make so much money if you win. And and it's it's just, I mean, it's part of the culture. It's right. a big money culture. They yeah. don't try and control yeah. spending. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so you've got massive operations. Yeah. You have these highly professional consultancies mm. that do that. In the UK, you've had a little bit of that. Mm. Uh, do you think there was a stage where governments, including their kind of security agencies, got a bit jealous of how much information on individuals, um, social media companies had? And thought, hang on, you know we could do with some of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure they do, because I'm not sure they're that interested. So I think... Okay. Uh, so interestingly, I think political parties are interested in... Because they want everyone. Because they want everyone. Really, security services, it's a needle in a haystack. Thing. Okay. They yeah. don't They don't yeah. want the haystack. They yeah. want the needle. Yeah, okay. They're big yeah. problem. Which is that. like a subset of 2% of the Yeah, population. they want to monitor 20,000 people. Okay. And they don't care about the other okay. 50 yeah. million. You know? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. But yeah. how do they find the 20,000? Yeah. Is that yeah. That's a different... But just have some sort of idea. I mean, how much information about an individual would an organisation like Facebook have? Um, is it possible to... to, to to quantify it, or I mean, if you if you have a Facebook account, it's pretty yeah. easy to see. Yeah, it's like it's like a history of location and yeah. interest, but also information from outside your Facebook activities. Yeah, which would get crunched up into preferences you okay. have, but all yeah. of that's visible. Okay, if you if you want to go and look in your account, do you think people understand that? And kind of, I know? think to to varying degrees. Yeah, and yeah. and again, how much you know this whole issue of how do you communicate what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the classic debates used to have is like, you Facebook, you're terrible. Your privacy policy is twenty pages long. How can everyone read that? And you kind of go, fine. It is that complicated. We'll, yeah. we'll make a shorter one. I know. You Facebook, you're missing things. Your I... privacy policy, you must add them in. Okay, now it's twenty pages again. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, some privacy, the Apple privacy policy. I mean, do, do, I mean, I don't think the Apple iTunes 
privacy policy, you know, at over 70 pages. Yeah. People are clearly not intended to read that, are they? I mean, You're not. So I, th I think the challenge is... It's called notice and consent, isn't it? The idea yeah. that the legal basis is the company gives a notice saying, here's what we're doing, and by clicking on using the service, you give your consent. But actually it's broken because people don't know what the hell their consent yeah, is. Yeah, somebody, somebody calculated if you read all the privacy policies of all the apps you installed you'd spend about three or four weeks a year doing it. I'm surprised it's as little as that, yeah, to be honest. I yeah. would think you'd spend almost the entire year doing it. Right. Day yeah, and night. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's not. So so how you communicate these things is important. And okay. again, that's the sort of stuff you work okay. on there, the company. So is your sense uh, that the, I mean, these powerful new services have emerged, like Google mm -hmm. and Amazon and Facebook, and that it's responsibility of govern governments to put a regulatory framework in place which allows them to thrive and protects sort of populations and vulnerable people against the, the, the worst sort of Exactly. So I think that, you know, there has to be a partnership. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a little bit of the you know, British notion of policing by consent. Yeah. The, the best outcome is going to happen when the community of yeah. tech companies, yeah. and then mostly they do have shared objectives with yeah. the government and society generally. Yeah. So if we all want to protect kids, and we all believe that's right, we can come up with a framework protecting kids that requires everyone to play their part. Yeah. So yeah. when someone is so bad that you want the police to kick their door in and take them away because they're yeah. actually harming children in real life, yeah. then then that's got to be a job of the, the government. When it's something like you know trying to stop people bullying each other... Yeah, or eat too much sort of obesity or diabetes causing yeah, food. Yeah, probably something that the yeah. tech companies... Yeah can do, yeah. you know, and, and it's reasonable to expect them to do More something. More nudgy stuff. Nudgy and, yeah. and, you know, remind people they shouldn't be bullying others yeah. and so on. So there's a whole spectrum. We need everybody to play their part. So do you think when we look at Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, I mean, do you think these are monopolies? And do you think the monopoly regulator should, should, should break them up? I mean, again, I think we need to ask the question, what would be the benefit uh, and so, I, so there's sort of two ways you can go. One is yeah, you can break them up, or the other is you can bring in regulations for the things that you're worried about. Yeah, um, I mean, that's one thing is if, if, for example, they are buying out organisations which would be potential valid competitors, so snapping up Instagram yeah. and that kind of uh, WhatsApp and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that that sort of behaviour is, is something that obviously competition regulators will look at. But some of what I hear is, for example, we should break up the companies because we're, we are worried about child safety or because we're worried about political interference. And the reality is, that to take the Facebook Instagram example, when Facebook bought Instagram, it was a company with 30 or 40 employees. It, it was never going to, at that stage, be able to really get on top of things like uh, child safety risks or political interference risk. When Facebook bought it, it inherited effectively yeah. a really experienced team on those things. And that's why yeah. a lot of the yeah. people have wanted to form competitors, which are fine when a thousand people use it, or maybe a hundred thousand people use it. They start to break <laughs> when yeah. a million or 10 million use it. Uh, and and so I don't think you know, it would be lovely if someone could overcome that. They could get the funding that you need to build a service at scale while still being cooperatively owned. And that may happen. It'd be lovely if it did happen. Okay, so we've covered an awful lot of ground. Yeah. Uh, on our on today's episode of In Our City, we've been talking to Richard Allen, Lord Allen of Sheffield Hallam. We've covered uh, local authority reorganisation, health, tech, we're working at the Bell in Bath. Yes. Life in Bath. Yep. Um, life as an MP. Uh, music in Bath. Music in Bath, and with some amazing sounds, and 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 also social media. And so that, that's really been a, a, an incredible talk. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank giving you. us the 25 year perspective on Fairfield House. Can we keep you in touch with Fairfield House and how it's going? Do please. I'm very excited to see what happens next. Well, we look forward to inviting you down to visit and, um, and maybe we'll even sort out our social media policy at one point. So this has been In Our City. You are tuned to Imperial Voice and keep the dial tuned that way.